Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome all of you to the Commonwealth Club. It is so great to have you here. It is my pleasure to introduce my great friend, fellow Bohemian, AA fellow, brother from another you, mother, nice Livingston Taylor. Nice Welcome to, to the Commonwealth Club. all of you this Club. evening. Great um, to have you here. Really fun, God. We have we have spent many hours talking, which I know we could, so we've got to keep yeah. it to about sixty-five or seventy minutes. And we got some questions from the audience, and obviously, I want you to play some tunes for us. So, but I figure good. I would just start off with a couple of questions that I uh, have a that I that I wrote down. Yes. Me, well, first right? of all, let's start with the uh, sword of Democles. Am I saying that correctly? Democles. Sort of Damocles. Damocles. Okay, I want to get the pronunciation right, and that's. Yeah. For those of you who may have seen it on the website, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, the gist of the story is it's about someone who trades places with the king and says, oh, it must be great. And then there's a sword hanging over his head by a thin thread. And yes. the, the burden of the crown, to use the cliche, ends yes. up being greater than he thought. Heavy so is the head that wears. I, I guess the more yes. applicable uh, application would be sometimes people see you from afar and they say, oh, this must be a great deal. But yes. then... Maybe it's not such a deal. So kind of maybe walk us through how that became to be such a meaningful thing for you and, and you know, how it applies. Just give us a kind of give us a gist well, on that. Uh, a distance always is um, simpler than up close. There was a, uh, there was a show, a um, movie, 20 Feet from Stardom, about backup singers. And I liked what Bruce Springsteen said about that. He looked down slightly, sighed, and said, that 20 feet is a long walk. It's a long ways away. And I, I tend to... Uh, when I see people who are in charge who have to make the decisions, um, I, I tend to cut them a lot of slack. I was down in North Carolina at the uh, Biltmore, and they had, they had gathered, they had gathered the um, uh, high court judges from a number of states at the Biltmore, a number of southeastern states. And they were there, and they had hired me to come and play. And I saw these men and women, and I was honored to be in their presence. I loved being in the presence of those people who have had to make and live with tough decisions. They carry a patina of melancholy, that, that, uh, and they have that melancholy because they ache as a result of having made tough decisions. And I like being around those people. Uh, their melancholy does not scare me. It, uh, I am not fearful of it. I'm honored to be in its presence. So, um, it's one of the things that I get to do is to wander around. And I've got a question or two for you. I've got, 
I'm I'm okay. interested. We've we've been friends for a decade now, yeah. and I'm curious what happened here. What happened to this arm and to this leg? Well, it's actually it was a two stage process. This was not when I was 19, when I had a car accident where I lost this leg above the knee and had what's called a brachial. Wait a minute, speak slowly. Don't don't uh, don't. I had a right knee above knee amputation and a brachial plexus injury, which is a nerve injury to my arm. So ah. that was when I was 19. In an automobile, automobile accident. accident. And then when I met yeah. you, that was yeah. in between. That yeah. was during my 35 years of yeah. unblemished health. And then starting in 2016, yeah. I had injuries, and this led to an infection. So then I had to do ah. surgeries. So now mm-hmm. I have to wear this brace to keep me from stumbling, which I still do on my own quite a bit, but just yeah. not quite as much as I would. Yeah. So, of course, I could give you the full story, but that's the back of the album. I am interested, after this accident um what was because i'm assuming because you're a extremely you're a tall intelligent really good-looking fella what well was one your, out of three ain't what, bad uh, 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 what was uh, what was your sense after the injury about did you have a sense that you were weakened for life that you were uh, was there a melancholy was there a depression after well there's always i think the stages you go through of you know there's the shock yeah. and there's the anger then there's the depression then there's the mm. bargaining and there's the, the acceptance so it's yeah. sort of the five stages of grieving which i'm yeah. sure many of you in different capacities have been through sure, so you so. go through those yeah. i think everyone has to go through them at their yeah. own speed yeah. you know it's and, but it's having other people who've been through similar yeah. situations was very impactful for mm-hmm. me having the great support of family and friends but again being able to talk to other people who had been there because they can really relate because otherwise it's an experience only club and people mean well but they can't really fully understand what <laughs> you've been right. through yeah and so after that, really, it's up to you. You know, your glass can be half full or half empty. And, and where uh, do I mean, you find, because you are truly a energetic, observant, and joyful person, and where, where do you find that continuing uh, engine, David? Through people and experiences and things to look forward to. And, yeah. you know, when I have a... I have a lot to be bitter for, and I have a lot to be grateful for. I can yeah. make a good case either way, but I find gratitude yeah. tends to put one in a better frame of mind than yeah. bitterness. Well, I can speak as one who knows you, and for many yeah. here who know you as well, and to say that your energy is a true inspiration. To well, me. you're you're so very kind. Thank you. Thank you. You're very kind. It's my it's my great friends and family and experiences, but you know your family has obviously been a source of great talent. Mm-hmm. Your family has also experienced a lot of tragedy mm-hmm. as well. You know, so you have been through, uh, have been with many people who have, have, have gone through great challenges. So maybe if you could share with us a little bit about that, because I think that we all are affected by our family and your family, obviously being the brother of James and having a lot of talent there. Yeah. Uh, as you say, there's that, Sword there, where with with great talent and its benefits comes burdens, and some people are able to handle it better than others. So, can you please tell us a little bit about your family and your brothers and relationships and things like that, and how it it impacted you. Well, um, I, I would like to 
say that for many decades uh, uh, I've taught college. Um, I taught for um, until uh, 2020. I taught at Boston's Berkeley College of Music um, and uh, as a full professor there. And I taught a, a course that I wrote uh, called Stage Performance. And that's how to be here, how to look at you, how to see you, how to speak, how to watch your words and your music land. The, um, it's been, these are teachable skills. These are, um, you can get better at this stuff. Um, uh, uh, these days, I've been teaching part-time at the Frost School of Music uh, at the University of Miami and uh, working for the dean down there, a fellow named Shelley Berg, who uh, you know well. I do. And uh, uh, Shelley is a wonderful world-class player. And not only do I enjoy uh, working for him, I particularly enjoy playing with him. And uh, I, there was another... We, I was working with another piano player, and this other piano player is good, and uh, it'll be nameless in this circumstance, but... but Really world class. And I could tell that Shelley, he didn't say it, but he was slightly, I shouldn't say slightly worried, but just concerned, you know, how does he, how is he stacking up? And I looked at Shelley and I said, you don't have to be worried. The other player is tentative with my broken heart. And you, when you feel my broken heart as I play, you cry like a baby. And so Shelley and I will be playing. And, and there he is. And, and uh, uh, it would be okay if I, uh, uh, I threw, a, threw a chord or two. We, we, I, I don't think anyone would object. Yeah. And so... By the way, and when you play, you watch it land. So when I play guitar, I'm watching these notes come off the guitar. I'm listening to them. I'm watching them come to you. And I'm literally, in everything I say and sing, I watch them, I watch, I watch it land literally on your tympanic membrane in your ear. That's where I let it go. And then I'll start to play. And I can't believe that I know how to play the guitar because when I'm not playing... I don't remember that I know how to play. And then I pick it up. And it just sounds so good to me. This is so cool. I'm a bitching guitar player. And so I'll hear these songs that, um, that, that are of curiosity to me. A song that I was listening to, um, it was a hit by Bobby V. 
and it was written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And Carol King and Jerry Goffin are very skillful songwriters, technically skillful. And so this, what do you say? My tears are falling because you've taken her away. And although it really hurts me so, there's something that I've got to say. Don't ever make her blue Just let your love surround her Between and all around her In everything you say and do Take good care of my baby Please don't ever make her cry Just let your love surround her Paint rainbows all around her. Don't let her see a starry sky. Excuse me, see a cloudy sky. I just learned this yesterday, so I'm messing up these lyrics a little bit. Now, so we have a lyric verse going in, and that's because the opening line of the song wasn't very good. Take good care of my baby. It's not really focused were directed. So, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, my tears are falling because you've taken her away. They do a setup and then walk into the song. Very skillful work. Now we're up to the bridge. Once upon a time, that little girl was mine. If I'd been true, I know she'd never be with you. So, take good care just as kind as you can be and if you should discover that you don't really love her just send my baby back home to me not too bad huh but again, if you study that great song, um, Once Upon a Time That Little Girl Was Mine, If I'd Been True, I Know She'd Never Be With You. It's so good in the pathos. Oh, it hurts so much. And you've been there. You've blown it. And so when you hear it, when you sing it, you know, ow, 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 that hurts like crazy. It's, it's so cathartic. And... and if you can be there and with it and don't ask it to do too much, then you can just let it break your heart. You cry like a baby. And often I'll learn these songs and it, uh, or write them. And it takes me months to be able to sing them without crying like a baby. And then when I'm with uh, uh, Shelley, Schul- uh, Shelley Berg and, or other great musicians and they are not scared of my broken heart. We have so much fun. Yeah. So, but how did you, this is, how did you get this transition from performing to teaching? As I recall, one of your 
most popular classes yeah. is presenting to an audience, right? Yes. As we're doing right here. Yeah. So what was that? Say what? What was the impetus or the inspiration for that transition? Where you were a performer, because you know I think it's safe to say that a lot of musicians I know, most of them don't teach. Those who do teach, do teach. They tend to teach music classes. Yeah. They don't really teach classes like your. What you teach is almost more in the public speaking format. You know. Yes, and by the way, I I also lecture to law students and uh, uh, and other people who are, you know, we all have a vision. And we all have a vision that we need to be able to present to others. The question is, how do you do it? And what... Oh, God. Um, The question is, not can you advocate for your strength, but can you stand by your weakness? I'll give you an example. I had written a song, and it had an opening line. There you are again. There you are again. I absolutely loved it. I loved how it fell and how it felt in my voice again. And... Um, And so then I started writing the song. There you are again In the rustling leaves of a summer storm In the rustling leaves of a summer storm And I hated that line. Not only did I hate the line, I hated the line and I hated myself for writing the line. I hated myself for being the worst songwriter ever in the history of the world. Absolutely frozen. And so I, I uh, 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 this was in the early 2000s, and, and, I, and I couldn't move. I was just frozen in this, in this, uh, this morass of self-doubt and self-rage. And then... An amazing thing happened. I had a vision. And the vision that I had was, and I want you to know this never happened, but it was a vision of Irving Berlin, the great Irving Berlin, and he had just written a song called God Bless America. This is 1919 when he wrote that song. And God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her with the light through the night with the light from above, from the mountains to the prairies, to the oceans, white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. You guys know the song. And but somebody has to hear it for the first time. Irving Berlin has written it, and in my fantasy, he's playing it for his publisher. And the publisher's smoking a big cigar, sitting there listening to Irving. Yeah. Irving's playing, God bless America, my home sweet home. Bump. And uh, the publisher says, Irving, you know, I like the song. I think it's a good song. But I don't know about the word Foam. <laughs> at which point, Irving Berlin looks at that publisher. Irving Berlin, raised in the Jewish ghettos of New York, born 1885, not a very tall guy, short fellow, and tougher than nails. And in my fantasy, Irving Berlin 
looks at that publisher and he leans forward and he says, do you don't, do you think for one instant that I don't wish I were a better songwriter and didn't have to use the word foam in my song? Do you think that I didn't go through every option available from the mountains to the prairies to my garden filled with loam? From the mountains to the prairies to my bald head which does not need a comb. The best I could come up with was foam. If you got something better, bring it on. Other than that, foam it is. And the vision that I had was not advocacy for the good parts of me, but advocacy for the compromises that I had to make. Advocacy for the weak parts of me. So now, when I sing the song, it's... uh, Are are you getting what you need sound-wise off of this uh, lavalier? I'm asking... uh, um, Okay, good, because otherwise I'll just leave this. So, there you are again In the rustling leaves of a summer storm And I sing that uh, lyric with the attitude of That's a personal friend of mine. You got a problem with it? Uh, No, Mr. Taylor, I think, good. Let's move on. Now, just outlining on this song for a second. There's another problem with it, and that's the opening words. There you are again. There you are again. It's a rotten opening line. We don't know who you are. We don't know where there is. I'll give you a great opening line. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. Now we got a great opening line. Another great opening line. My boyfriend's back and there's going to be trouble. (laughs) Fully set. But there you are again. You can hear the problem with it. The solution. Write a lyric first going in. I believe in actual. In the clear, the concise, and the factual. All of life has reason, and it should be clear to see. But when the crowds all drift away, and we are apart for one more day, in the most peculiar places, you're where you should not be. There you are again In the rustling leaves Of a summer storm In my favorite chair Safe and warm In the wish that a child believes There you are again 
When light returns to the morning sky When two lovers cannot say goodbye When a movie makes me perfect story ends Oh, there you are again Do I ever get over the feel of your touch The sound of your voice, the scent of your hair Your quiet reminder to not be afraid When you promised you find me somewhere there you are again till I forget to close the door and the heartaches in and I'm damned I'm sure to each day miss you more when I think I can't There's a whisper in the wind And there you are again Yeah, good stuff. So, The lesson being, can you advocate for your weakness? Are you fearful of your weakness? Do you try to run away from it? Or can you say, that's a personal friend of mine. Got a problem? I don't think so, Mr. Taylor. And then we'll see, God, every time you play a song, it makes me think of another question, and that is your creative process. And sometimes you start off with, Lyrics that ask questions. Sometimes you just go off with lyrics that answer yeah. them, right? Yeah. So if you had to crystallize down to a few words or a few theories, how would you describe your creative process? Um, generally, um, uh, uh, there are things. Uh, it's the case for all of us because it's important to remember we're all being creative all the time. Um, my hope is to turn it into a song, get a lot of radio airplay, uh, have people send me royalties and and applaud because I'm so uh, 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 they agree with my mother about how special I am. The, this this notion where creativity comes from is creativity comes from observation. You watch. You look. You are situationally aware. The absolute nightmare of these, um, uh, of of cell phones, I think I've left mine mercifully in the dressing room, Um, my new four horsemen of the apocalypse, screen time, social media. Screen time, social media, um, vaping, um, which is an infinite drug delivery system of remarkable efficacy. Um, vaping and an uncurated internet. An internet where you're allowed to say and do anything. How discouraging 
to have lost our gatekeepers. Anyhow, creativity is the ability to observe. And the you maximize your ability to observe by one thing, and that is not being in fear. Whenever I hear uh, uh, an elder... Uh, uh, a contemporary of mine, I'm 73, and whenever I hear an elder say, I'm scared, my immediate response is, how dare you? How dare you be in a state of fear? I don't mind concern, I don't mind sadness, I don't mind broken heart, but your fear indicates that you are in a state of panic, that you are out of control. And if you are out of control as an elder, do the world a favor. Go sit over there. We'll let you know when we want your input. (laughs) And people say this, oh, I'm really scared about what's going to happen. Really? Sit over there because I need to deal with people who aren't scared of what's coming around a corner, who are in fact enthused and energized about it. I remember when the, um, we had the tragedy, uh, uh, Scott, uh, of the uh, first uh, 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 shuttle, that, uh, that was the Challenger, correct? And, and I remember somebody saying, um, uh, well, I hope they died quickly. And I thought to myself, as you would well know, well, trust me, they hoped they didn't die quickly. And I assure you that what they ran out of, what those stunningly competent human beings ran out of, was not enthusiasm. They ran out of time. And they would have been clicking through checklists, and they would have greeted that challenge with energy and observation And that's what I want for all of us. So the creative process comes from being energetic and fear-free. Don't worry. You are those two things. Something's going to come into your brain that's going to trigger something else. And you go, this is going to be so cool. And you will have created something. Yeah, well said, well said. Sweet. So in terms yeah. of in terms of your teaching, when did you and when did you start thinking, you know what, I've got I've got this good gig going musically, but I can I can impart my wisdom, I can share what I've learned and what I want other people to know yeah. through teaching. So was there like a watershed moment or was there what, how did you make that transition? I had been lecturing at the Berkeley College of Music. The Berkeley College of Music in those days Great school, by was the way. a school of practitioners. It was a trade school. People like me, I was working, um, doing shows, and I'd come in and teach. And I taught what I did. And, uh, 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 and indeed, the division for Berkeley and me is Berkeley transitioned from a practitioner-based um, uh, institution to an academic-based institution, meaning they, as so many of them have done, they hired people who don't do what their what their uh, uh, 
uh, particularly in the administration, who don't do what they're talking about. And such is not the case at the Frost School of Music in, uh, at the University of Miami. Um, Shelley Berg, trust me, he is spanking that piano. Anyhow, um, uh, but, but uh, a guy by the name of Rob Rose came up to me and he said, because uh, I had lectured a few times at Berkeley on performance, and he said, would you like to teach a class? And um, I was uh, 39 at the time, but uh, I'm not a fool. I can look into the future. And I was aware that an academic setting would be a bureaucratic setting. And remember, bureaucracies are created by old people for old people. Because a bureaucratic setting, when you're young, is really ugly and rude as you get a little older. And so I knew that I would want to settle into a, um, uh, a bureaucratic environment where I can be held, where I could be held a little um, uh, as I got older, and I'm there now. And uh, uh, in terms of old, um, so so the um, uh, also. I was very aware, I was very aware that what you're looking for all the time, now it's my job with my students to add value. They've all paid money. First discussion out of my mouth with my students is, what does this course cost? I'm serious. What does it cost? And what is this very course costing you today? This one of 13 sessions together, what's it, going to co- what's it costing you? And we figure it out, and at the time it was $160 or something. It's a lot of money. And I look at him and I say, if you don't show up, I'm going to hurt you on grades. You're spending a lot of money. I don't care if you come here and look at me and go, I hate you. <laughs> That's fine with me. But do not take this course and not show up. Drop it now. If, you're, if you can't be here. I do not abide you wasting money. And so that, that's the first discussion with them. Um, and so in terms of adding value, I have a responsibility to add value to every student that's come into my class. But that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the same thing you are. Listen, mediocrity is fine. Mediocrity is still can uh, uh, have sex and reproduce and be uh, uh, contributing tribal parts and all of those things. Those are great. I love mediocrity. But it's not what I'm looking for. Because how evolution worked this out is so great. Evolution worked this out that they just flood mediocrity out there. And what we're looking for is magic. And what we're looking for is that one in 100 that sparkles. I love the start of a new semester and walking into that class and looking at, at those students and in the back of the class somewhere, there'll be a couple and they'll be looking at me like this. smoking the metaphorical cigarette. And they're, what they're saying to me, what they're thinking is, what the hell am I doing in your class? What are you going to show me that's going to add to the magic of my life? 
and I'll think to myself, this kid's going to kick my ass the whole semester. I can't wait. (laughs) We owe value to them all, and I take that seriously, but I'm looking for the magic. And again, it's one in a hundred or so that, uh, that you find it, but when you do, gee, it's fun. But there aren't many kids, I'm sure, by the end of the class that are smoking the proverbial cigarette, are there? Oh, you know, uh, no, I'll go through whole class sessions with uh, people who really don't like me at all. You know, I'm a strong cup of coffee. I got that. It, that's okay. But um, sometimes you get, I, I get some of the classes I took in school, yeah. the ones that end up being the most instructive yeah. were for professors I didn't like. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, no, I don't, uh, it, it's okay not to be liked. What I love to say to my audience, I look at them, and, uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be in a show and I'll, I'll look at them and I'll go, uh, you, uh, uh, don't worry if you don't like me. You don't have to like me. I love you enough for the both of us. We're all set. And, um, and that's the way I feel about an audience. I need them. This was my choice to be in front of them. I love that phrase, I'm an humble. They're an humble performer. Really? Are you high? There's no such thing as an humble performer. That we would get on this stage, expect you to sit quietly, pay attention to us, um, uh, oh, did I mention uh, buy my music and come to further shows? You know, this is a stunning act of hubris, and this is where nervousness comes from. Nervousness comes from the fact that the content of what you're delivering will not justify the hubris of the interruption. And so it makes you scared, makes you fearful that they're going to be angry with you for, and you start to worry about things like making a mistake. Oh no, I made a mistake. Who cares? If they're not going to like you, don't worry about the mistake. They already don't like you. (laughs) And it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Hmm. How much fun is that? Well, God, I have so many, so many things I want to ask you, but in terms of obviously your teaching, your music, you know, one of the things we love about you is that you're a rare bird just in your attitude. And so tell me some of the people who have you really enjoyed collaborating with some of who are some of your mentors, your your inspirations, you know, when you say, God, when I when I this is a part of my ethos and it's because of this person or I wouldn't be teaching if or doing what I'm doing because of that, unless it were that person. Well, certainly musically, first and foremost, my first guitar teacher was a guy named James Taylor. He's anybody anybody a, heard of him? Yeah, I don't know. I he, think it's a name he, rings a bell. He's two and a half years older than me. And by the way, I'm a good guitar player, taking nothing away from what I do. But James Taylor is a great guitar player, and so I would watch him play and he was 16, and I was uh, 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 13, 14. And I would, 
um, I guess he was 15, and, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I'd be, uh, I was sort of 12, 13, watching him. I would try to do what he did, and when I would get it wrong, he would slug me. <laughs> Boom. Generally in the arm or in the chest, or you know, just pop. And so for the price of a slightly sore arm, I got guitar lessons from James Taylor. And I'm telling you, he's a great, great guitar player. Um, the other influences, uh, I was speaking with a lovely young uh, singer uh, before uh, coming on uh, up here uh, this evening. And um, I was speaking to her about studying great writers. And I said, who do you like? And she mentioned she liked Joni Mitchell. I said, well, that's good, but study Joni Mitchell until you find out who her hero is. And then you study them. And so what I study, my favorite lyricist, is Oscar Hammerstein II. Listen to his skill in assembling a lyric. I'm as corny as Kansas in August. I'm as normal as blueberry pie. No more a smart little girl with no heart. I have found me a wonderful guy. Each syllable, the note is changing as opposed to take good care of my baby. Where that is harder than Chinese algebra to sing. Not that song. I'm as corny as Kansas in August. I'm as normal as blueberry pie. No more a smart little girl with no heart. I have found me a wonderful guy. I'm in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy I'm as trite and as gay as a daisy in May a cliche coming true I'm bromatic and bright as a moon happy night pouring light on the dew I'm as corny as Kansas in August high as the flag on the 4th of July and you'll excuse the expression I use. I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. Oh, yeah. Forget about it. Oh, man, that's good song. That buddy. is good song. So who is... Yeah. Who is it? That's, you know, lyrics, but in terms of music, who's your f- well, favorite songwriter? Well, that's obviously Richard Rodgers. Uh, um, and, and obviously. Rich, yeah. No, I, Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. Um, Richard Rodgers with Lorenzo. My romance doesn't have to have a moon in the sky. But, but the thing about Oscar Hammerstein is that his ability to use the lyric to further the song 
to further the character of the song. Um, somebody, uh, uh, my friend Bobby Vickers was talking about Huey Lewis and taking Huey, and we've seen a lot of this, Billy Joel or Carol King had beautiful, and that did quite where Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, uh, Mama Mia, uh, 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 Abbas songs. We've seen a lot of this, trying to get great songs on Broadway, so the uh, uh, so you don't have... Um, uh, the the difficulty of finding people who write like um, uh, Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein II, or Lerner and Lowe. I, I I don't even get me started on this. Anyhow, the the um, um, uh, musically uh, certainly uh, uh, Richard Rodgers or George Gershwin and. Um, uh, Oh, gosh, Harold Arlen. I'm going to love you like nobody's loved you. Come rain or come shine. And again, a great song. A great song doesn't make me, the singer, sound good. It makes the audience sound good when they're singing along with me. And if an audience feels, and this is back to performance, People must feel better about themselves at the end of your show than they felt at the beginning of your show. And if they don't, they're not going to spend money on you again. The question is not, are you well, but are they well? Can they be comfortable in your presence? Can you look at them and see them and just... uh, I love it. Sometimes I'll do a show and there won't be many people there. And, and the people, they'll be worried. You know, have I hitched my wagon to a falling star? And I'll be backstage and I'll walk out and I'll look at them and I'll go. It is so great to be here in Columbus, Ohio. I love Ohio. I love Columbus. And I can't believe there are so many of you here. I didn't think anybody knew who I was out here. God, I'm glad to see you. You can manage this. You can manage their expectations and their disappointments. And so, um, it's also easy to be gracious, to make them smart. And so, When I sing my songs, my enunciation is meticulous. I want everybody to get every word. When I speak, I'm clear as a bell. When my students come out and they they go, um, Hi, I'm I'm Livingston Taylor. If you don't understand that, if you don't understand, if the audience doesn't understand your name, it's not you who got it wrong, it's them. When you are disappointed in their presence because you're living with your own fear, what you're saying to them is, I feel badly when I'm around you. And the audience looks, I look at him, if I'm an audience member, I "I don't need your help to feel badly about myself. I got that part. And if I need it to be reinforced, I just go to the registry of motor vehicles. And then I feel really poorly about myself. I need you to... Help me find a way that I, I don't hurt so much, that I don't feel bad. And I look at them and I go, I'm so glad to do that. I'm so honored to be that person for you. 
to try to do that. What a beautiful gift you've given me to allow me to tell you how much I love you. Now we're entertaining. Yeah. Awesome. So, I know probably a lot of you are thinking, because you've had a 50-year career, and what were some of the really meaningful parts of your career? (laughs) Turning points, you know, epiphanies, bricks falling on your head, whatever cliche we want to use here uh, that kind of helped made you who you are, or maybe you realized something that was right in front of you that you weren't seeing for 10 years, and all of a sudden that it was just crystal clear, something like that. Well, certainly that epiphany about Irving Berlin and that made-up story, that was so helpful. But the watershed moment in my career was November 1977. My career had started in 1970, and by 1977, it had drizzled down to pretty much um, um, a, a barely glowing cigarette butt on a sidewalk <laughs> in a pending rainstorm. <laughs> I had toured in the early 70s with a rock and roll group by the name of Jethro Tull. Jethro Tull, you know. Oh, yeah. I think a few of our audience members might know Jethro Tull, yeah. So, Jethro Tull, I did Thick as a Brick tour, I did the Passion Play tour. Um, again, um, th- those tours ended in the early 70s. Um, uh, Jethro Tull went to, uh, I went in the direction of wimpy folk music, they went in the direction of arena rock. It's 1977, Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, runs Jethro Tull, he calls me up on the phone, and uh, I'm living in the Boston area and uh, my career is pretty much out. And um, Ian calls me up and says, "Uh, Livingston, I'm not feeling well. I'm doing two shows at Madison Square Garden. Would you open for me? At which point I say to Ian, Ian, if I delay your audience's reunion with you in New York City, they will kill me. I was looking at the same time at a pile of bills. And I said, is there going to be any money involved? And he said, I'll pay you $1,000 a night. I'll be right there. <laughs> I fly down to New York. It was cheaper than it is these days in 77. And I go to Madison Square Garden, just me and my guitar. Just, a, just me and my guitar. Show up at Madison Square Garden. And... Um, now, this is sold out, and we're talking 13-odd thousand people, but 360, they're in back of me. And I take my little guitar, and this is me, uh, 140 pounds at the time, uh, soaking wet. And I walk out in front of that crowd, me and my guitar, and I start to play. And they start to boo. 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 And it was loud and thick and viscerous as only New Yorkers can do. And it was flowing over me. And it was... And, and I'm playing this song and I'm about two-thirds the way through. And something in me snapped. 
Because here I was, with a career going out, being booed by 13,000 people who were affirming just how miserable my career was. And I stopped playing. And I got close up on that microphone and I said, Let me tell you something. Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull are going to be out here, and you sp- in a big hall, you speak slow and loud, are going to be out here, and they're going to be fantastic. And, it, and the, the, the cheer starts to die down. And I don't know where this came from, because then I said, But right now, I'm here. And if you don't like it, you can get the out. They went crazy. Boo! Boo! They were just absolutely lathered up in their dislike of me. I played a few more songs. I stopped. I left the stage. I see Ian Anderson. You that was tough, mate. I said, yes, it was. And he said, not to worry. Tomorrow night will be easier. (laughs) And how's that? Well, tomorrow night is the second night. That's the second night on sale. This was the first night. This is the first night on sale. This is the passionate fans. This is the aggressive ones. This is the ones that are crazy. That'll be gentler tomorrow night. And um, willing to uh, take any port in the storm. I said, okay. I come back the next night. And just before I go on stage, I'm informed that the second night was the first night on sale. They had added a second show, and that second show was the day before. I got on that stage, and they were loaded for bear. They were ready for me. I got across the first night, but not twice. Not in New York City. Not in their town. So I'm starting to play my first song, and I glance stage right. And a whiskey bottle, they were made out of glass in those days, (laughs) came down, smashed on the stage. And now things are slowing down. And the glass slides and bounces off my feet as it goes across the stage. And I'm watching that, and then I look up. And as I look, a long neck beer bottle spins past my head. Remember, 360 around. And that spins past my head into the audience, doubtless doing damage. Uh, for somebody in there. And at that same moment, somebody blew up an incendiary device, a cherry bomb, in the back of Madison Square Garden. And the, the roar was unbelievably loud. And at that point, I realized my presence on stage was putting everybody in real danger. Myself and all of them. And so I stilled my strings. I looked at them and I said, and probably, I don't remember ever doing this again, 
I said, it will not be possible to continue tonight. And I left. But that moment, that first night when something in me just snapped, here were 13,000 chemically altered, mainly male adolescent New Yorkers agreeing with my assessment of my career. (laughs) And something in me said, you're wrong. I belong here. And if you don't like it, get out. Leave. Wow. So, welcome to... And then actually after that, I got a record contract. I was going to say, record, you, you, you know, took my next get, question. Yeah. How did it... No, it worked, it worked out fine. Uh, um, uh, uh, I got a record contract with CBS and had a couple of uh, uh, minor hits uh, with them and uh, uh, met Michael Jackson at the uh, uh, at the... Dallas CBS convention, and uh, yeah, they signed Michael and myself at about the same time, and uh, uh, I applauded them on both signings. <laughs> yes. So, in terms of you know, if what would be, if people your experiences, your career, what are one one or two things you'd like people to take away from that? When they hear you, they see you, they feel you, they get your your ethos, your vibe? Well, as all of my contemporaries know, it's interesting where, where we drift as our lives move on. First off, we love to complain about young people and how they're doing things. I want you to, show, uh, to assure you that this complaint has been made by old people about young people literally since the beginning of time. The demise of the planet is predicted at, by calcified old people who can't endure change at the hands of young people who are flexible and nubile and are inventing the world that they need, not that we need. And so what's the anecdotes for old age? It, it is hard to um, become less relevant. What happens is that in our 40s and 50s, we have a power structure. We have uh, not only currency, but we have the currency of favor, of knowing people, people knowing us, being able to barter our skills and our uh, absolute uh, uh, essentials in the uh, in, in tribal negotiation, in negotiations in our peer groups, uh, we're able to be of really great service. As you get older, that simply reduces. Well, I used to know a great carpenter, but they retired, they died, they went away, and and so what you have to offer to your peer group um, uh, becomes less. Hopefully. You come to this point with enough uh, financial resource to be able to compensate for those lack of other values that you contributed. No matter what, eventually even that's not going to help. Um, uh, uh, there is no amount of wealth that can buy you um, eternal life or love. So um, eventually the only anecdotes for old age 
are gratitude and forgiveness. And when I say forgiveness, I mean the ability to forgive yourself. And when somebody doesn't hold the door for you because you're no longer strong or good-looking or um, a sexual, a reproductive option. <laughs> it's okay. And, and that's, again, that's fine. You go, I got it. I got it. So that ability to, um, uh, to forgive. You know, I was thinking about, I, I think about things like this all the time. And I had a little, uh, I have a house on Martha's Vineyard Island uh, uh, back east. And, and, and I've got a little Grumman sport boat, 15 feet, with a, uh, a three-horsepower motor. And I would go out lobstering. I'm uh, too old to do it now. I don't have the strength to, to pull the pots anymore by hand. But for years I lobstered, and I would collect a bunch of lobsters together. And, and I would put them into one... Uh, uh, a cage, one trap uh, sealed, and I would wait till I had a bunch of them, and then I'd invite some friends over, and I would take them, and I would uh, uh, take them up to the house, and I would dump them in boiling water. Uh, I would kill kill them by doing that. Then I would break them apart, dip them in butter, and with the joy of myself and my friends, we would eat them. This is harsh behavior, people. And so one day I was walking along and I was thinking, well, gosh, if God is a lobster, I'm going to be in stunning trouble here. <laughs> and so I envisioned myself getting up to the, up, 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 to the pearly gates and um, God is there. And I'm looking, okay, um, Listen, I imagine you're a little cranky about your brothers here. Why, uh, why don't I give you 20 minutes to calm down and then I'll come back? At any, at any rate, um, uh, I thought about this. And I thought about God. And I thought, um, could the God that I know, the God um, uh, who knows everything who knows all, ever create um, a hell. And uh, and I went, no, uh, God created it all, and God loves all of his creation equally, equally. And then I thought, how in the name of God am I going to, excuse me, Oh my God, it's God. Anyhow, um, uh, how, how in the name of God uh, am, can, uh, can I go to heaven with uh, Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, because everything's going to heaven. God loves all of his creations equally, and he made them for a reason. And so, how can I go to heaven with Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, and my neighbor next door who uh, revs up his motorcycle at 6 a.m.? And, and the only way I could get through that dilemma was to envision heaven as being a place where I was able to forgive instantly, effortlessly, and perpetually. That there was no trespass because there was nothing that I couldn't forgive. And uh, so 
hopefully that will be the case when uh, if God is a lobster and uh, uh, and I and I uh, meet up. Well, in our closing in our closing moments, I would love it if maybe you could play a song for our crowd that would be a wonderful song because you played bits and pieces, but something that you would like them to take home. This is a song called Never Lose Hope. I had a rather complicated melody. And I thought to myself, wow. I'll write a simple lyric. And I wrote the lyric around that phrase, never lose hope, never lose hope. Not realizing, of course, how much hope I was going to need to think I could rhyme the word hope through an entire song. You can do it till the dream comes true. You can do it till the sky goes blue. I know it's dark, but in your heart There's a light that will see you through Here's a melody to help you cope Even when you're at the eddy baby end of your rope Jump up, join in again Shoulders up, stick out your chin Elbow grease and soap Oh, never lose hope up and start to breathe wear your heart upon your sleeve follow the fairy tale down the winding trail hold on and believe show them all what you're up that the only choice is love And if they ask if you're afraid not to join the big parade, you can just tell them, nope, oh, never lose hope. The new year starts tomorrow, the past is done, it's worst, no need to hide. The world so wide, water for your thirst. Even Boston lost its curve. I don't think so. Saddle up and start to ride. Giddy up, you found your stride. Gallop away on this beautiful day It was all inside You toughed it out and made it through And you stayed true to you You're on the other side You left behind your foolish pride Your names in the end Follow Oh, never lose, oh, never, never, ever.
Woo! Yeah. Livingston, we could, we could sit here for hours and talk to you and feel like we're just scratching the surface. Thank we'll you, We'll have David. to come back and we'll do this again. I would look forward to that very Thank much. Thank you so much, everyone. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Wow, that was great. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.